And you're listening to another edition of the WOKV District 4 Spotlight. My name is Kevin Rafuse, and joining me in studio today is Mr. David Bruderly. David, how are you today? I'm fine, Kevin. How are you? Good, good. So you have the uh, you have the title of being the Democrat running for Congress in District 4. You actually have that locked up. Thankfully, you don't have to. Well, I'm sure you're saying thankfully you don't have to compete in the August 30th primary. You will be on the ballot come November. So I guess first up, why? Uh, what made you want to jump into this election and get on to the congressional level and then after we talk about that what would what does it mean to be the democrat running for congress well you may um, you hit it right on the net on the head and that i literally did jump into this race at the last minute and i did that because i'm semi-retired and uh, two days before the filing deadline i discovered that uh, i would not be able to vote for my congressman because i'm a democrat the election was closed because there was a write-in candidate, what I'm calling the write-in candidate gambit. This is the same tactic that was used to close the state attorney race and the public defender race here in Duval and five other races throughout District 4. There are seven closed elections, meaning that only one party, members of one party can vote in District 4. And I think that's a, whether it's deliberate or not, unconscious, cultural, whatever the excuse, it's it's un-American. It basically deprives people of, of the opportunity to vote for their elected representatives. And it's a tactic that's been used uh, equally by both parties, and it's equally abhorrent, in my opinion. So my defense to that was an offense. I decided to run. So I literally ran to the election office. Had to open a campaign account at, at a bank. I couldn't write a personal check, so that took six hours because they, they don't get very many federal candidates at the bank, and they didn't know how to do the paperwork. But I literally had to run from the bank in Tallahassee up the hill, down the hill, in the election office in 98-degree heat, humidity, and filed with about 15 minutes before the noon deadline on Friday, June 24th. Yeah, I have to admit that that is hands down the most unique filing story we've heard so far throughout these spotlights. But we are here now... Um, um, obviously, this is a district that has been represented by Andrew Crenshaw for a long time. Congressman Crenshaw is retiring. You know, wh- what does it mean for you to be the Democrat in this race? And what can you offer that the Republican candidates haven't in District 4 in the past? Change, uh, frankly. Um, you know, the Republicans in this area have controlled the House of Representatives and the Florida delegation. Nationally, for 18 of the last 22 years, the Republicans have controlled the Congress since Duke Gingrich became Speaker in 1994. In this region, because of the gerrymander, we've had one Democrat, uh, Ms. Brown, and three Republican congressmen in this region, in your broadcast area, for many, many, many years. And and frankly, so the Republicans have a three-to-one majority in Northeast Florida, North Central Florida, in terms of their Representation and con- uh, representation in Congress. So if if you're not happy with how the government's working, uh, and you think that conservative politics have been your sol- your savior, you need to look in the mirror and take a hard look. Because if you look at the facts. It's not the president that really is the source of all the problems for this country. It is the fact that the Congress, a conservative-led Congress starting in 1994 with Newt Gingrich, has basically taken actions that have repressed the ability of the government to represent the best interests of all the people. And and basically, that's why I'm running, whether it's fiscal policy, uh, energy policy, environmental policy, health care policy. Conservatives have been obstructionist to making progress in solving uh, these very critical issues of concern to all the people, not just the top 
to use a Bernie Sanders phrase, the top 1%. Well, one of those uh, policies that you just mentioned there was economic policy. And we've seen a ton of growth here in Northeast Florida. Just within the past few years alone, a lot of big companies, Amazon recently, for example, setting up shop here in Jacksonville. Um, There was a Forbes.com study that showed that Jacksonville is the second most attractive destination to people moving right now. We've seen tremendous growth in St. John's County as well with the school district being forced to build three new schools just because of all the new people coming into that area. You know, how would you continue that with your policies and how do we continue to create jobs here in Northeast Florida? Well, the fact is that Florida, Northeast Florida still has a lot of pine trees and we have a lot of cheap rural land and that's being exploited in St. John's County and Flagler County, Clay County, and West, West, West Duval. It's much cheaper to redevelop or to develop pine trees into subdivisions and business parks than it is to go maintain and redevelop the downtown core, which has kind of withered on the vine over the last 20, 30 years. Now, this is not a federal uh, function as much as it is state and local functions, but it's, it's called urban sprawl by urban planners. And, you know, I spent a, most of my adult life over in Gainesville, where we had uh, considered to be the, um, I think they call it the, um, Alachua County is the um, capital of communism or something in the United States. Florida trend once called Alachua County a socialist republic, the Demo- their socialist republic of Alachua County. And the reason was that in Alachua County, they've deliberately tried to keep growth in the urban core, and they've tried to have walkable communities around the University of Florida complex. And and have tried to discourage the sprawl out into the suburbs where, frankly, taxpayers are subsidizing that sprawl through public financing of roads and other infrastructure that goes out into the pine trees that then private sector investment exploits. So Jacksonville's kind of been the opposite. You know, you've, you've had the town center develop in the last 10 years, which has sucked the life out of downtown. Now I'm not I'm not opposed to to new development in pine tree in, in pine trees and abandoned mines and so forth, and I think the people that are doing that work are doing it in a responsible manner in that they're trying to make their communities walkable and bikeable and more efficient and more uh, uh, friendly to the consumers. You can see that in in Nocatee and and some of the other developments down in, in St. Johns County. But the fact is is that we still have policies that that tend to tend to uh, you tend to subsidize urban sprawl by public financing of roads and highways out into uh, land that's not developed. And we haven't quite been honest, in my opinion, about who's paying for what, and who, you know, who pays and who profits. And, and, and again, that's not a federal issue. That's a state and local issue. And another issue you mentioned was the environmental impact. We know here in Florida, um, a number of climate change scientists have been Talking about rising sea levels and the effect that that could have mostly on Miami, really in South Florida, but even here within Jacksonville, there was one study I read that had said that Jacksonville could be underwater as soon as 200 years from now. You know, What type of role do you think the federal government needs to have in dealing with climate change and how big of an issue do you think it is for our time? Well, I'm a professional engineer. I'm not a professional politician. And I cut my teeth in the environmental sector back in 1969 when I spent a year on an oceanographic research vessel in the Pacific Ocean pulling cores of mud out of the bottom of the ocean that are now being interpreted by scientists to help them understand how the climate has changed over the past six or 700,000 years. In the 1970s, 
my very first project that I managed at my consulting firm it was a subsidiary of Reynolds Smith and Hills called Environmental Science and Engineering in Gainesville. We did non-point source pollution studies to d- identify the sources of nutrient pollution to surface waters throughout the state in Tallahassee, uh, Lake Apopka, Tampa Bay, Sarasota Bay. Scientists 40 years ago defined the problem that we're now seeing in the Indian River Lagoon and in, in the St. John's River. Too much nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, mostly nitrogen in this part of the state, phosphorus in the Everglades. These nutrients are upsetting the, nat- the balance, and this is causing your, your, outgro- your algae bloom, your green slime, the stuff that's made the headlines. The problem is scientists identified that problem 40 years ago. And that we still don't have the, the regulations in place to control that type of pollution, non-point source pollution is what it's called, runoff from streets and from agriculture, uh, septic tanks, that sort of thing. And we're spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to try to clean it up after the fact. Now, you can use that same analogy on greenhouse gas pollution and climate change. Forty years ago, scientists, you know, they had some suspicions in the, the theory of the greenhouse gas theory had been proposed. Uh, well, in the last 40 years, scientists have pretty much confirmed that the greenhouse effect is real, that greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, methane, uh, water vapor, do cause uh, retention of energy, which causes the atmosphere to warm and, more importantly, causes the oceans to warm, the upper upper 700 meters of the global ocean. So scientists started about 40 years ago to really get a handle on, on this whole phenomena of climate chaos. They started out calling it global warming. Then it became climate change, and now it's turning into climate chaos because what happens when you put more energy into a closed system, and the Earth is a closed system from a thermodynamic standpoint? It starts to, if you have a pot of water on the stove and you add a little bit of heat, you know, it'll simmer. You turn up the heat, it'll start to boil and it'll rolling boil. And that's kind of what we're doing to the atmosphere ocean system in this on this planet. We are adding more heat energy to the atmosphere, to the oceans. The oceans are warming. They've warmed. That's a fact. Uh, the oceans have acidified because the oceans are absorbing more greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, about 0.1 pH unit additional acidification in the last 100 years. And this is causing uh, more intense hurricanes, more intense droughts, more intense thunderstorms. And frankly, is the expansion of the oceans, because the oceans have warmed, is causing sea level to rise. The rate of sea level rise is increasing. And Jacksonville is just as vulnerable as Miami Beach to sea level rise. You get out there, in fact, the Department of Defense has already identified the fact that its coastal naval bases, such as Mayport, uh, could lose 25% of their usable land, and not in the next 200 years, but perhaps as soon as the year 2050. This is a problem that we've, we didn't really understand it 40 years ago. We do understand it today. There is consensus in the scientific community. We had a, tr- uh, a treaty negotiation that, that in Paris but last December that came out with an, with an agreement of every country on the, on the face of the planet that we should start to do something to start reducing the greenhouse gas pollution to the atmosphere, and targets were set. The targets are not tough enough to solve the total problem, but they're a huge step in the right direction. And that's what President Obama has been doing with his climate action strategy and clean power plan and, and the fuel efficiency standards and a whole bunch of other federal actions that are designed designed to push the economy in, in the direction that we have to take if we're going to hope to um, mitigate or avoid uh, the really devastating impacts of runaway climate change. The concentrations in the atmosphere have increased 40% in my lifetime. 
40% in my lifetime. I'm 68 years old. We can't let that trend continue. We have to slow that down because if we hit a tipping point like like the levels were um, 600,000 years ago, we could end up having a planet that's very different than the planet we live on today. And that can happen in the lifetime of my grandkids. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm running this campaign is to get the message out there that we're all part of this, you know, like Pogo in the swamp, you know, he says the, we're all part of the problem. We met the enemy and he is us. The good news is you can change our energy infrastructure. You can change our business development strategies and ways to start to re- solve this problem and create jobs locally here in, in Jacksonville, here in Florida, here in the United States. We can lead by example. We can lead the world in solving this problem. We don't have to basically uh, vilify any interest group. We just basically go out and get the job done. So I want to switch gears a little bit now. It's It's been about two months since the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. We know 50-plus people were killed in that shooting. One of a number of mass shooting incidents that's happened recently across the United States. We've seen calls from Hillary Clinton's camp and President Obama for more gun control. We've seen pushback on the other side from Republicans who are more focused on the mental health issue. You know, What do you think we need to do to stop these types of mass shooting incidents from happening here in the United States? Well, the mass shootings here in the United States are, are really a function of people that are we call the lone wolf. They're they're people who are mobile, um, mo- motivated by whatever uh, stresses in their lives, and they react in a violent manner. We got 300 million some guns already out in the streets in this country, and and frankly, I don't know how to solve that problem. We do need to start addressing mental health as a legitimate physical ailment. There's no question that mental illness is, is a, has a physical basis. You can just look at post-traumatic stress disorder and our returning people, uh, veterans. Uh, there's physical trauma that causes people to go crazy. And we need to stop treating mental illness as a, as a crime and, and treating people when, by putting them in prison and putting them into, into health care situations where they can be treated responsibly. As to how you get guns out of the hands of, of criminals and bad guys, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, personally, I grew up in a family of hunters. I, I hunted when I was a kid, and I know that you don't need a semi-automatic weapon with a with a, mag, a high-capacity magazine to shoot a deer or a turkey or a pheasant or a dove. You know, you had we had plugs. When I was a kid, you had plugs in your shotgun. You got three shots. If you couldn't get your target in three shots, you, you, you know, you need to go back to target range. So... I think there's a lot of rational things that could be done, and, and frankly, I think the National Rifle Association uh, has fanned the flames of fear intentionally to protect their own manufacturing base. Uh, I, 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 if you look at NRA, yeah, they got a couple million members, and they're not going to endorse me. I know that. Uh, but uh, they're protecting their manufacturers and their businesses. They're not necessarily protecting the public health, safety, and welfare. When you were talking about mental health, you mentioned PTSD, which is one of the numerous issues that our veterans have to deal with when returning from places like Iraq and Afghanistan and in the past in in Vietnam and Korea and even going back to World War II. And we've seen a hot button issue in the VA system, veterans not getting the care that they need, not being able to see the doctors in in a reasonable, timely manner. How do we go about reforming the VA so that we can guarantee our veterans get the best care? Well, frankly, I'd, I'd like to see the entire health care system reform to move towards a federal standard of uniform care for everybody that's implemented on a state-by-state level. 
and House Bill 676 was uh, a single-payer program that was introduced uh, back uh, many, many years ago by Representative Conyers. And unfortunately, when, when health care reform was, reform was implemented uh, in the early years of the Obama administration, uh, the industry and other folks basically conspired to keep that bill locked up in committee, and it never got a, a full and fair hearing. The way you fix the VA in the short term is you make it easier for veterans to go to the nearby hospital and get treatment. Uh, what's happening today is we only have two major VA hospitals here, one in Lake City and one in Gainesville. And if you live over, if you live near those hospitals, you're not in bad shape. But if you live in Jacksonville and you got heart pains and you go to Memorial or Baptist, there's a whole bunch of hoops that you got to you got to jump through while you're in pain and distress. And they have nurses to help you go through that process. But the problem is, if you don't follow the process exactly, you, you may not get approval, and the VA may not pick up the bill. So I think there needs to be some real reform towards trying to come up with a more uniform federal system that would integrate the best features of Medicare, Medicaid, and the VA, and TRICARE. Those are half the, half the health care money in this, uh, in this country already is already managed by the federal government in some way. I think we need to basically come up with a, with a core level of service for all citizens uh, that, that treats everybody, and moving towards a single-payer system is the way to do that. And speaking of our veterans who are often coming back from Iraq and Syria, kind of kind of switching gears into a bit. Actually, hang on. Let me. I want to rephrase that real quick. Three, two, one. And we talk about a number of these ailments that veterans face, and and the fighting and coming back from war. And we know the United States right now is involved in an air campaign fighting back against the Islamic State in both Iraq and Syria. As of now, President Obama has kept that to airstrikes and putting a number of special forces on the ground in both those countries. But people are concerned in the wake of attacks in Europe, and Paris, and Nice, and Brussels. You know, how do what do you make of President Obama's ISIS strategy so far? And if you were to make any changes to it, what more would they involve? Uh, why don't you ask an easy question? <laughs> I ran for Congress in 2002 uh, against Clifford Stearns in, in Gainesville because I asked, I am a naval was a naval officer as a young man in addition to sailing on cargo ships. You know, I, and I've been a professional engineer working in the area with the Department of Defense on chemical weapon demilitarization. Uh, we pursued contracts to, for nuclear waste management. And I'm very familiar with a lot of the biological uh, agents that, that cause health problems. So in 2002, when I started hearing the excuses that were being put out to occupy, to invade and occupy Iraq, I asked Congressman Stearns to not just rubber stamp that decision. I asked him to challenge the assumptions. I asked him, what is the plan for victory? Not just defeating Saddam's army, but stabilizing Iraq after you've won the actual war. Because I had no doubt that we could beat Saddam's army. And the answer I got from this Republican and every other Republican in the House of Representatives, save one representative from South Carolina who was defeated in his next election, was we're going to rubber stamp President Bush's uh, decision to invade Iraq. Over 130 Demo House Democrats voted no because they were asking questions that were not being answered, and they weren't or they weren't happy with the answers. I've been vindicated on that. Now I lost my election in 2002 uh, because people thought I was not patriotic for challenging the authority of the president to invade Iraq when the bad guys. In, but the bad guys were in Pakistan. They were in the mountains of Afghanistan. That's where Al-Qaeda went. And so 
you know, as Colin Powell said, we we broke it, we own it. Now, so President Bush and his his band of neocons created a huge mess in the Middle East. They stabilized the entire Middle East. They destabilized the entire Middle East, and we're dealing with the consequences. Fifteen and the nineteen hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, four were from Egypt. They were Wahhabis. I knew all this in 2002. So the answer to your question is, you like me, you're going to have a guy who understands the world as it really exists, not through the frame or the lens of a, of a talk radio host or some political science major who, who doesn't, who's still green behind the ears and knows everything he knows because he read it in a book. I've traveled around the world on cargo ships and on business for my entire life. I'm 68 years old. I've been to Turkey. I've been to Egypt. The world is a dangerous place today. But when I was young in 1966-67, it was a lot more dangerous. I got on a ship in New York in in September of 1966, and I sailed to Nigeria right into the middle of the Biafran-Nigerian Civil War. I got on another ship a couple months later that went through the Suez Canal just a week before the Israelis and the Egyptians started shooting in the 67 war. That ship then went to Pakistan, Karachi, Pakistan, and Mumbai, India, Bombay at the time, and they were fighting over Kashmir. That ship then went around through the Straits of Malacca where the Mayaguez had been hijacked by pirates just a couple years later than when I went through there. We then went around the war that did have America's attention, which was Vietnam, because it was on the nightly news. And then we went from there up to North Korea, which everybody, and South Korea, Pusan, which everybody had forgotten about. In addition to that, we had the Soviet Union armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons, and we're in DEVCON 2, uh, a DEVCON status that basically was a hair trigger for all-out Armageddon nuclear war. So when people tell me that, hey, the world's a dangerous place, I say, yeah, well, it's always been a dangerous place. The difference is you don't, you didn't know about it when you were young because these, these wars weren't widely reported except for Vietnam. Today, we, we have criminal activity happening in this country and in Europe and we do have insurgencies in several of these dictatorships that have been destabilized by a long history of stupid policies implemented by the Western allies that go all the way back to, the, to World War I. And we still haven't figured out how to, how to let the people in the, in the Middle East, uh, how to be an honest broker for peace. And the reason is that we're too dependent on oil. From, from the Middle East. Our whole policy, sent, when, I was, when I went through the Indian Ocean in 1967, I didn't see an American flag, let alone an American warship, for, for three months. We had no military presence in the Persian Gulf. A couple broken down destroyers from World War II, and that was it. Today, we have two carrier battle groups on permanent duty in, in, in that theater of operations. We have a whole fleet based in Bahrain. You know, we have militarized the Middle East, and it started during the Reagan administration after the Iranian Revolution. And we militarized the Middle East to protect Saudi oil so Saudi oil could freely flow to Japan and to Europe and, and into the global, mar- the global market to keep the price of oil low because that was popular back home. you got to have cheap oil. The problem is we haven't broken that oil addiction, and that was an addiction that even President Bush recognized. He said we are addicted to oil. We have to break that addiction. And my, my career, my professional engineering career since the year uh, uh, 1990 has been focused on how do you do that? How do you replace liquid petroleum motor fuels with electric vehicles, with hybrid electric vehicles, plug-in vehicles, natural gas trucks, 
uh, liquid natural gas to power ships. We're doing some of that here in Jacksonville, and we should be doing a lot more of it. And I've been working across the aisle with uh, Representative Lake Ray, for example, and, and with the TPO here and, and with the chamber to help get the, put the, the groundwork in place to not just have one project here and one project there, but to turn this in this whole initiative of the electric and the natural gas and even the biofuel uh, uh, projects into a, a revolution, a real revolution that will end our total dependency on liquid petroleum motor fuels and help us be a better arbitrator for peace throughout the Middle East. And as we begin to wind down our conversation here, we'll end it with one final simple question. Why among the crowded field of candidates here in District 4, why are you the most qualified to represent District 4 in Congress? I'm the only man that's going to be on the ballot in November who is going to be a mili- have military experience. I was a naval officer, uh, left the service as a lieutenant. I went to the United States Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point. That was my ticket to seeing how the world really worked. Uh, through the eyes of a businessman. I've been a professional engineer my entire life, registered here in Florida. I worked in the environmental sector. I have hands-on experience with clean water projects, with with energy projects. I understand how the, inf- the transportation projects, I understand how all this stuff works to, to build the backbone, to build the spine of the economy. And I'm the only guy I think is going to be, I don't know who my opponent's going to be yet, but I'm the only guy, I believe, who can claim that he actually started a small business that was quite successful. We we grew environmental science engineering uh, during the time, the 14 years I was there, from 60 to 600 people. It became a nation nationwide powerhouse in the field of environmental engineering. And the, many of the people I worked with are now scattered all through North Florida in other small businesses. So I understand business. I understand government. And I'm, and I'm a capitalist. I believe in what Adam Smith taught us. And he said the role of government is to regulate the economy to protect the commons, our clean air, our clean water, and our land, and all of our food supply and our agriculture, to protect the commons from rapacious development, from exploitation by the mercantilists. That was in 1776 when he wrote the book, The Creation of Wealth and Nations, same time that Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence. The question is, what is the role of government in regulating the economy? And I will tell you that my Republican friends think that the role of government is to get out of the way and just let the good times roll. They talk about deregulating the, the, uh, the, you know, cutting regulation. If you look at what they're actually doing, what they've been doing, every time the Republicans get a chance, they cut the, they try to gut the Clean Air Act, they try to gut the Clean Water Act, they try to gut the Safe Drinking Water Act. They don't fund, you mentioned Zika, you know, we can't even get a program to control the mosquitoes in South Florida funded by the House. They adjourned rather than, than, than passing legislation because they tied it, tied it to a, a hot button issue with defunding Planned Parenthood that was dead on arrival. You need to work across the aisle. And I have many, many Republican friends throughout the country who know that I'm basically a professional engineer. I'm not a professional politician. I have no interest in furthering uh, the ambitions, my personal ambitions to higher office, this is it. I want to give something back to my country in exchange for what my country gave me, which is the opportunity to see the world as it really exists and to give me the education that I needed to deal with that in the sciences, in the mathematics, in the technology and the engineering disciplines, the STEM things, which are now a big popular talking point. But I actually did it, and I think we need to not only educate 
our kids, we need to re-educate some of our politicians because they, they didn't read the last chapter in Adam Smith's book, which defines the role of government in, in creating a capitalist economy that works for everybody, not just the top one-tenth of one percent. And you've been listening to the WOKV District 4 Spotlight. Again, we want to thank Mr. David Bruderly for joining us in studio today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.